Hello, and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp, the podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century, and most notably, throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 29, At His Majesty's Pleasure. In past episodes, I have looked at the hospitals, both physical and mental, places that at the time were seen as advanced institutions, only for us to see them today as the horrific nightmares that they really were. But what was it like if you went to prison? Admittedly, a lot of people were kicked out of the kingdom and sent to places like Australia. But what if you got to stay in country? Where did you go and what was that like? If the places of caring were as bad as we know they were in the 19th century, just how bad were the places of incarceration? So, this episode, I thought it might be fun, well, for us anyway, certainly not the prisoners, to take a look at the infamous Newgate Prison. Newgate was actually built in the 12th century, so at the time I'm talking about, it was already over 600 years old. This was an important prison in London because it was the main prison for the people awaiting trial in the nearby court. These courts are where the trials were held. Known as the Old Bailey, the nickname became synonymous with being in the criminal justice system. In addition to this task, Newgate was also the main prison for those that could not pay their debts, so it functioned as a debtor's prison. But the good news about Newgate is that they stopped having executions there during the 1700s. Oh goody. Now, I could couch this in a positive way and say that Newgate was a good prison that was all-encompassing of its inmates. But that would be horrendous spin, because what it means in reality is that not only did Newgate house petty criminals with minor offences, it also contained the worst of the worst, being the place of incarceration for murderers and rapists. And don't even think about this place being somewhere for rehabilitation. It was all about punishment. Now, I'm sure that even new listeners to the podcast understand the conditions of government buildings were not the best for people hospitalised in them. So I am guessing that to you, dear listener, it comes as no surprise that Newgate Prison could be described as a dark, damp, stinking cesspit of a place. Shockingly, around 30 people a year died there. So that's more than one prisoner every two weeks. And it needs to be stated that this atrocious record of keeping people alive was not helped by the fact that because the conditions were so appalling, many doctors refused to actually work at the prison. There was a lack of decent water, which caused all sorts of problems in terms of illness among the inmates. A lack of ventilation also meant that the place stank terribly, and this also contributed to the ill health of the inmates. Because of these conditions, as well as the incredible overcrowding in the prison, you can just imagine how bad it was when some sort of illness ran through the population. Epidemics of all sorts were common occurrences, and in these conditions they spread through the prison like the proverbial wildfire. 
Lice were an absolute standard to expect in any part of the prison and guards would leave prisoners continually chained to the walls because it was easier than having them roam about. Another aspect to prisons everywhere during this era was that prisoners had to purchase their needed supplies. Items such as clothing and bedding were not supplied for free. You also had to pay a fee upon entering prison. Pay for any sort of comfort on top of the basics that you had already paid for and when you finally got to leave the stinking cesspit that had been your home for however long, you had to pay a fee then too. And in terms of comforts, well, the one thing that you could buy was alcohol. It is reported that those that could afford this luxury basically spent all their time incarcerated while being perpetually drunk. Possibly not the worst way to be, I guess, but hey, I am Australian after all. And who were some of the guests that stayed at this horrible place? Certainly with over half a millennia of history, there have been some interesting and impressive guests at their majesty's pleasure. But in keeping with the podcast theme, let's hit some of the 19th century highlights, shall we? John Bellingham was an English merchant that was conducting business in Russia. He could have his own podcast with everything that happened, but suffice to say he was accused of sabotaging a Russian ship, hit with a debt he couldn't pay, and jailed for a year. Then released in 1804, his attempts at legal recourse saw him jailed again, this time until 1808. Left homeless, it was another year before he was allowed to leave Russia and return to England in 1809. From the safety of the United Kingdom, he petitioned for justice and compensation. With diplomatic relations between Great Britain and Russia broken off the year before, he really had no chance. So, in 1812, despite the sensible advice of his wife to let the matter drop, Bellingham purchased two 50 caliber pistols and on the 11th of May went to Parliament and promptly assassinated Spencer Percival. This was the man who was the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. He then sat there and waited to be arrested. Locked in Newgate, he was hanged on the 18th of May, 1812. That's a mere week after his crime. So much for the appeal system, I guess. Newgate Prison was available to accommodate both men and women, and one such woman was Catherine Wilson. Born in 1822, she went on to achieve a career in nursing, but rather than working in a hospital, Catherine worked in the private sector for people in their homes. While details are scarce, it was during this time that she married a man known only as Dixon. Sadly, he died shortly thereafter. A doctor recommended an autopsy, but poor Catherine begged him off, no doubt emotional about her husband's death. To placate the new widow, he acceded to her wishes and did not do an autopsy. By 1862, Catherine was working privately for Mrs. Sarah Carnell in Cumbria. In some way, Mrs. Carnell was not feeling well, and so Catherine prepared a soothing draft to relieve her discomfort. Reportedly, the so-called soothing draft was not that great. Mrs. Carnell spat it out, saying it actually burned her mouth, and it was later noticed that the liquid had burnt a hole in a bedsheet. 
Catherine, no doubt terrified at what had happened, fled to London, but was arrested days later. In the trial, it came to light that the so-called soothing draft contained enough sulfuric acid to kill 50 people. But Catherine claimed that the pharmacist that had given her the medicine was the person who had made the mistake in the volume of acid. This came as a surprise to the judge, one Lord Bramwell. The judge, upon hearing this defence argument, had stated that if the acid had been added at the pharmacy, the mistake would have resulted in the bottle bursting into flame. Regardless of this blatantly common sense approach to evidence, the jury found Catherine not guilty and she was acquitted. Lucky Catherine. But as the song goes, time was not on her side. Catherine was again arrested after evidence came to light of more of her past patients and their so-called illnesses. This time she stood before Mr Justice Biles and was again defended by her formerly successful lawyer, Montague Williams. During this second trial, evidence came to light that seven of Catherine's previous clients had all left her money in their wills. The fact that they had only died after recently rewriting their wills to include the nurse caring for them was actually a piece of evidence that wasn't able to be admitted into the court proceedings. However, other evidence found by toxicologist Alfred Swain Taylor showed that all the victims had high levels of colchicine in their systems. Now this would be suspect in any normal person. Colchicine in your body in large amounts can cause diarrhea, vomiting, cramping and abdominal pains. These are all regarded as side effects when you're taking this substance, which is a common treatment for those suffering from gout. Curiously enough, all the patients that Catherine had been caring for suffered from gout. Which does beg the question, was she choosing her patients based on their afflictions? And having done so, was Catherine using the medicine that they would have been taking to ensure her future financial security? Well, Justice Biles thought so, and after the trial he stated that, quote, Gentlemen, if such a state of things as this were allowed to exist, no living person could sit down to a meal in safety. End quote. Thus, Catherine Wilson was found guilty and sentenced to hang. With an estimated crowd of 20,000 people on the 20th of October 1862, she was hanged. She was the last woman publicly hanged in London. Jürgen Jurgensen was born in Copenhagen in 1780. I am going to criminally abbreviate his adventurous life here. Trust me, it really is amazing and I am itching to cover it. But for now, let's just say he went to sea, he travelled the world, including South Africa and Australia, and he's also been called the founder of Hobart, which is the capital of Tasmania. He later found himself in London and was sent to Newgate for theft in 1820. Later transported to Australia in 1825 and arrived back in Van Diemen's Land, as Tasmania was known back then. 
Given his history with this island, locals moved to have Jürgen given what was known as a ticket of leave, and he was later freed. He died there in 1841. He had been an adventurer, gambler, explorer, husband, and from June to August in 1809, the protector of Iceland. Yes, you heard right. He had declared Iceland independent of Denmark and put himself in charge. I'm teasing you right now, I know, because he is podcast gold. More on him another time. Edward Gibbon Wakefield was born in 1796, was well educated and worked as the king's messenger carrying diplomatic mail during the Napoleonic Wars. He was 20 years old when he eloped with 17-year-old Eliza Patty in 1816. While it does appear that they were genuinely in love, she was also very wealthy. The rich newlyweds moved to Genoa in Italy and had a daughter and then a son, but sadly Eliza died four days after his birth. But this wealth wasn't enough for Edward. He wanted more money and also an estate, which would give him the opportunity to enter Parliament. Now, Alan Turner seemed to Edward to be the wealthy match he needed to get that position. So he had his servant take a message advising that Alan's mother had become paralysed and needed to see her. While she did not recognise the servant, she was convinced to go with him. Ellen then met Edward, who told her that her father had fled creditors and was on the run, but that if she married him, her father's debts would be paid. Ellen agreed, and so off to Scotland they went, where the relaxed marriage laws saw them married. Using business as an excuse, Edward then took Ellen to France. By now, however, Ellen's father was trying to track down his daughter, but during this time, Ellen's father received a letter from Edward stating that they had been married. He expected Ellen's father to agree to the marriage because of the possible scandal otherwise, and this would ensure Edward had the funds and the status he needed for Parliament. But Ellen's father doubled down and got the Foreign Secretary involved. Although he claimed they were legally married and she couldn't be taken from him, Edward allowed Ellen to return to England to her father, and he promptly bolted for Paris. But a warrant had been issued for his arrest, and he soon enough was found on trial in England. With his brother and his servant, both of whom had been involved in the deception, Edward was put on trial. All of them received jail time, and in 1827, Edward was given three years at His Majesty's pleasure in Newgate Prison. And just to round that story out for you, the marriage was annulled by an Act of Parliament. It became known as the Shrigley Abduction for the town of Pot Shrigley, where Ellen was from. And I did leave a couple of details out in the interests of fun storytelling. The ladies that Ellen had been staying with were the mistresses that ran the school she was attending. Ellen was only 15 and at boarding school when all this happened, so no wonder her father was trying to track her down. Unmolested by Edward, Ellen later went on to marry a wealthy man, although she sadly died in childbirth at age 19. And Edward, well, after prison, he travelled the world. He was directly involved in establishing colonies in South Australia and also in New Zealand, and was a member of Parliament in Canada as well. He died in New Zealand in 1862 at the age of 66. 
basically proof that the good die young, really. Next, we introduce Mary Wade. Best research indicates that she was born in 1775. It appears that she may have had siblings, but poor Mary spent her days as a young child begging on the streets of London. In 1789, Mary and another girl stole a cotton frock, a tippet, which is kind of like a stole, and a linen cap. After selling the frock, she was caught and put on trial in January of 1789. Mary, at age 13 at this point, was found guilty and sentenced to hang. Yes, a 13-year-old penniless girl was going to be hanged because she had stolen a cotton dress. While awaiting execution, King George III recovered from his most recent bout of madness, and in celebration, all of the women on death row had their sentences commuted to transportation to Australia. Mary had spent 93 days in Newgate Prison at the age of 13, as I said, and this was a prison that didn't only house those petty criminals, it also housed murderers and rapists. Also, being that she was a death row inmate, her cells were in the lower levels, basically a cellar, and that was where the sewers ran. Can you imagine the relief, even though you know you were going to be sent to Australia, that you would have felt as a 13-year-old knowing that you were getting out of there? But to give you a little summation of what happened next, well, Mary was sent to Australia on what was known as the Second Fleet, these were the first ships sent to Australia that only had women and children. That trip took 11 months. She lived in both Tasmania and New South Wales, was married or lived with a series of different men over the years, and had somewhere in the vicinity of 21 children. Yes, 21. <laughs> that was almost as big a shock as being sentenced to death at 13. She died on her 84th birthday in 1859. Probably from exhaustion. Okay, I'm joking. At the time of her death, she had 300 living descendants. She's actually considered one of the founding mothers of Australia. No surprise there. And obviously, since then, this number has increased, and there are any number of people that can trace their heritage to Mary Wade. Included in these is one Kevin Rudd, who became Australian Prime Minister in 2007. In 2017, the New South Wales government created the Mary Wade Correctional Centre, which was a remand centre for women after her. We do that here. It's a weird Aussie thing. Years ago, we lost a Prime Minister while he was swimming in the ocean, and his body was never recovered. Since then, we have the Harold Holt swimming pool. Go figure. And on that comment on our odd humour, here endeth the episode. You can find me at victoriangaslab.com. My contact details are on there as well. If you could follow me on Twitter, that'd be great, at Vic Gaslamp, and more importantly on Instagram, where I post history facts and trivia as well as photos related to the episodes, and I'm Victorian Gaslamp there as well. The next episode will be out in two weeks, so keep a lookout for that, and I'll see you next time under the Gaslamp. <laughs>